Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, the Service Complaints Ombudsman tells SITREP it is still taking too long for complaints in the armed forces to be dealt with. I could send to someone in my other life for a relatively serious offence, actually quite a serious offence, and they could go into prison and come out of prison and their service complaint would still be going through the process. We hear from Nicola Williams, who's leaving the role at the end of this year, about what's been achieved and what more needs to be done. What do we know about the Navy's planned Type 32 frigate? We speak to a former naval commander. What kind of military planning will be needed in the rollout of the COVID vaccine? It's not the same as moving heavy metal you know, around the world to our various theatres of operation, but it's the it's scale in terms of the numbers and, of course, with some of the vaccines, the conditions they need to be moved in. And we report from Cyprus, where Royal Marines are testing new technology and systems. One of the biggest things that we've trialled here has been developing a communication system that can connect the man on the ground to the ship and right back to the UK. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. But first, how to handle complaints in the armed services has been a long-running issue. In 2016, Nicola Williams was appointed as the first service complaints ombudsman, following a year as service complaints commissioner for the armed forces. She leaves her position at the end of this year, and today MPs on the Defence Committee have approved her successor, Marriott Hughes. In her last annual report, she again said the system for raising and addressing grievances in the military is not efficient, effective and fair. I spoke to Nicola Williams earlier this week and asked her what kind of complaints her office dealt with. It's not what you would expect. Um, most people, if they read, if they were civilians and read the newspaper, would think that the majority of complaints are around bullying, harassment and discrimination. Actually, the majority of complaints from service personnel are to do with career management, uh, quite often to do with promotion and comments, adverse comments, on the reports that either soldiers or officers get. And what particular issues does the culture and the environment of the armed forces present to people who want to make a complaint about something like bullying or sexual harassment, for example? Well, I think one of the things that I really like and admire about the services, and I will say that it has been an honour and a privilege to do this job, and I've met many, many service personnel who are very proud to wear the uniform and they have every right to be. One of the things that I admire about that is a real sense of loyalty and esprit de corps. However, that can be perverted and, and used in a, in a very negative way, which would mean that someone will feel disloyal if they made a, a legitimate service complaint, even though they'd have every right to do so. So that is a, a big um, issue that we see with regards to service complaints. And particularly because the community is so tight-knit, that must be difficult to keep things confidential if, say, for example, a woman wants to make complaints about yes. sexual harassment. Yes. It, it is difficult to do that, and I know in hearing this, this might dissuade someone who wants to make a service complaint that they can legitimately make. All as I would say is if someone wants to make a, a service complaint about a legitimate matter, a legitimate wrong that has happened to them in their service life, whatever it is, they absolutely should make it. And if they are victimised for making that service complaint and the matter comes to us, that is a matter that I take very seriously as Ombudsman and that will be reflected in the recommendations that I make. What progress has been made in reducing the proportionately high numbers of women and BAME, Black, Asian and minority ethnic personnel, complaining about things like bullying? Um, I'm very happy that you asked me that question because of the recommendations that I have made in the annual reports, 
a recommendation concerning that particular issue was one of the first ones that I ever made as Ombudsman. And in terms of the numbers, there, it has always been that although women and people of black, Asian, minority, ethnic background are a relatively small proportion of the total UK armed forces, they are higher proportion in their numbers within the service complaints um, field. So more people make service complaints that fall within those two groups. Um, the numbers are reducing slightly, but not enough. They're still disproportionate. It must be a source of some frustration to you. It is a source of frustration in the sense that as I've said, that was an early recommendation that was made uh, in three and a half years ago, and it's still outstanding. Mm. I do not consider it to have been substantially complied with, although there has been some effort to comply with it by the MOD. I'm not saying nothing has been done, but the progress has been frighteningly slow. Why is it so slow? Perhaps that's a matter that you need to ask the MOD. I absolutely see no reason why three and a half years after I made that recommendation that is still outstanding and has not been substantially complied with. You've repeatedly criticised the service complaints process for not being efficient, effective and fair. Do you still believe that? And if so, how does it need to change? Do I still believe that? Yes, I do. And I think that's unfortunate. I will say, because I would, it would be unfair of me to not say it, that there has been real progress from the time that I was appointed Ombudsman to now at the end of my term. However, um, the progress has been very slow. It may well be that there needs to be quite a, a, a fundamental uh, change in the way that service complaints are dealt with. And that would be appropriate because five years after the inception of the Ombudsman's Office is probably a good time to look at that. But the fact of the matter is, right now, although I can say things have improved, I would still say that the service complaints system as a whole is not operating efficiently, effectively and fairly, and all three of those have to be in place. One of your big frustrations has been how long it takes to resolve service complaints. Mm -hmm. The armed forces are known for their efficiency. Mm -hmm. What's going wrong? You'd think this could be easy to fix because they're people who work under pressure, they know how to do things efficiently. Why is this process not working? I honestly don't know because um, as some people may or may not know, in my other life, I still have a part-time role. I started as a barrister and I, I sit part-time as a Crown Court judge. And there are service complaints, some of which are dealt with very quickly within the 24-week uh, time period. But others take so long that I could sentence someone in my other life for a relatively serious offence, actually quite a serious offence, and they could go into prison and come out of prison and their service complaint would still be going through the process. So I see absolutely no reason why it should take this long, and that is the reason why, in my first annual report, one of the recommendations I made was about delay. Very early on, from my very first visit, 10 days after I started, back in, uh, in fact, as, as a commission in 2015, let alone as the Ombudsman in 2016, people were complaining about it since then. So I have absolutely no idea why matters take so long and why it is taking so long to resolve the issue of delay. So there's an issue of delay and then there's delay around resolving the issue of delay. <laughs> yes. What effect has the pandemic had on, do you think, will have on the, the kind of complaints that are made? I'm very glad you asked me that question because it's hugely topical. This is just my view on it, but I think as Ombudsman I'm best placed to give this view. If you divide service complaints into broadly speaking two categories, which is to do with career management and then bullying, harassment and discrimination, of course there's a bleed over with those two, but broadly in those categories. 
people that possibly have a complaint, uh, who have felt that they have a complaint around bullying, harassment, discrimination, might not have really thought about it at the time, might have dismissed it at the time. But during lockdown, you know, as more people are working from home, more people have time to think, they've thought about that, and now they want to make a complaint about it. So they'll be complaining about things that had happened before lockdown. With regards to career management and uh, issues around promotion and moving around the country, I think those would be issues that have arisen during the period of lockdown. Mm. So you will find that people... In terms of those two groups, bullying, harassment, and discrimination claims might have happened before um, March of this year, but um, career management, particularly around issues of promotion, will arise during this year because, of course, people can't move around. If they're promoted and they have to move somewhere else, they can't move because of the lockdown and the tiered restrictions. So we're going to see a big increase in complaints, do you think? We could do next year. I think we could. You leave at the end of the year. Yes. When you look back at your time as a service complaints ombudsman, how will you think of it? Um, with interest, pride, um, happiness on the one hand, um, frustration, absolutely, in terms of dealing with service complaints and the sometimes sclerotic nature of the uh, rate of change. Um, but overall, I, do, I, I really love the spirit of loyalty, honour, Stoicism sometimes from service uh, personnel, and it has been an amazing job. Nicola Williams there. In a statement, the MOD told us, we care about the well-being of our personnel and carefully consider every complaint. We are determined to ensure service personnel have confidence in the complaint system, which is why we've recently reviewed it and will be implementing reforms early next year to allow us to deal with complaints more quickly and effectively. BFBS, the Forces Station. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Sitrep. When the Prime Minister promised a new multi-billion pound funding settlement for defence, he said it will be used to restore Britain's position as the foremost naval power in Europe. He confirmed plans for eight Type 26 and five Type 31 frigates will continue, but went on to talk about, for the first time, a Type 32 frigate. So what do we know about this Type 32? The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace spoke about it to MPs on the Defence Select Committee. Type 32 is obviously not in the next five years, as a, you know, it won't be a, 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 a straight up, but it's it, a commitment to put funding to the next Type 32 programme. The Type 32, we hope, will come further along from the Type 31. Type 31 is only uh, five uh, ships, uh, and the Type 32 will hopefully follow a similar track. They will be able to be used for NATO, um, and uh, we can probably reveal more details about those Uh, as we go. Um, The Navy have requested another class of ship, that's the Type 32, Um, and if you think of the profile, the Type 23, which will be coming out of service, uh, and some of that will be picked up by Type 26, uh, and the Type 45s, which are obviously, hopefully with a PIP correction, going to run longer than they would have done, uh, I think it's about increasing our surface fighting ships, destroyers and frigates. 
In a written answer to Labour's Kevin Jones, the Minister for Defence Procurement, Jeremy Quinn, said further work is required to develop the operational concept. But he noted, it is envisioned that the Type 32 will be a platform for autonomous systems, adding to the Navy's capabilities for missions such as anti-submarine warfare and mine countermeasures. Well, with me now is former Navy Commander Tom Sharp, who spent 27 years in the service, and Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank, Rusi. Hello to both of you. Um, Tom Sharp, the integrated review is due to be published next year. What are your thoughts about the gap this new Type 32 could be designed to fill? It is, uh, it is very clear at the moment that there is no um, procurement option on the table for the Type 32. This is purely a statement of intent uh, in order to ensure ongoing shipbuilding uh, once the current order books uh, are, are fulfilled. So we are in the business of looking at what the Navy currently has and wondering what else it might need. And the answer to that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's more surface escorts, more frigates, more destroyers. It, it, it was ever thus. Uh, Nelson said it a couple of hundred years ago. He needed more frigates, and it's the same now. The reduction in hull numbers from 19 uh, down to 13 is going to just increase the pain levels on those, on those high-end warships. So what we need is, is more of those in whatever form they come. Now, if they can take autonomous... Uh, vessels in order to conduct other uh, other missions, then, th- then that's great. But they've also got to be able to defend themselves and deploy globally. Yes, the mention of this Type 32 came as a bit of a surprise to many people. Some are speculating it will be similar to the Type 31, but taking account of the massive changes in technology, as you mentioned, over the last few years. The Type 31 is a very interesting programme, and in my view, has been for some time absolutely fundamental to the to the core of the Navy. For a Navy to succeed, it needs both balance and mass. Uh, we lost balance for a few years when we, when we lost some of our high-end strike capabilities. We've got that back. What we now need is mass. We need mass back. We need hull numbers. Uh, in, very, in very simple terms, the Type 23 frigate, by the time hull number 18 came out, HMS St Albans, it cost less than it now costs to refit a Type 23 frigate. In other words, if you build enough of them, they almost become self-sustaining through economies of scale. So that's what we need. We just need, we need hull numbers. Uh, we need to push uh, to as high-end capabilities as the budget will allow, um, but we mustn't have that at the expense of mass. We need both. We need, uh, we need that capability and we need numbers. Mm, Michael Clark, what do you think the publication of the Integrated Review next year will bring in terms of information on all of this? Well, it should certainly bring a lot more information because at the moment we're all sort of punching in the dark as to what the strategy might be. And all of the indications are that some elements of the review have gone back into the mixer. Probably the ground force elements, the things that will affect the army most, seem to be back in the mixer. But this announcement is clearly, as it were, very just parochially very good news for the Navy. It it looks as if the review will have quite a flavour of a maritime strategy, which is not to say that Britain will have a maritime strategy, but we are certainly going to have a stronger maritime element to whatever our strategy is. And it rather looks as if the MOD is anticipating a, an, an es- a core escort force, an escort fleet of, say, 24, plus probably quite a few robotic ships, which might derive from the Type 32 as that 
as that develops. But that also suggests to me that, that the Navy is also very convinced that it will deploy two aircraft carriers simultaneously, um, whether they'll both be strike groups is a different question, but that at one time we used to say that look, we're building two but we'll only deploy one at a time. It now looks as if the government assumes that we'll deploy them both. And so there is quite a big maritime element in whatever else then comes out uh, in early next year. Mm, uh, and Michael, Boris Johnson talked about the chance to restore Britain's position as the foremost naval power in Europe. Yes, and I think the announcements that have been made will almost certainly do that. I mean, Britain is the, it's the biggest military player on the continent of Europe, if you leave the United States out of it. Um, and this will, as it were, increase those, those naval assets, which have been run down. I mean, no, nobody questioned the fact that the Navy was losing ships and crews earlier than the Army was losing personnel and that the Air Force was losing personnel. So the Navy, as it were, began its rundown earlier and it's beginning, beginning its build-up a bit earlier. But the, the, the question of how all this fits into NATO's future strategic posture is still a very big question because if this is done at the expense of, as it were, heavy armour or, or a, a modern army on the continent, then I'm not sure NATO will be uh, entirely happy about that, but that's still to be seen. Tom Sharp, we've had confirmation that HMS Queen Elizabeth and her carrier task strike group are due to deploy to the Indo-Pacific next year. Why has that been chosen as her first deployment in 2021? I think it's important to note that that was chosen probably five or six years ago, that the planning for this deployment has been in the, in the pot for that long. Uh, and they would have gone through a number of options, sitting down with a, with a blank... Uh, chart, as it were, and looked around the world and said, where, where should this group of ships, as the, as the Navy reverts back to carrier strike operations, which is a, a major muscle move from where it's been for the last 10 years. It's essentially been singleton deployments to various parts of the world in frigates and destroyers. Where do we want to take this capability? They would have started to take shape in, in Navy planning circles probably five years ago. Uh, and then in the interim, interim years, of course, everybody would have had a, had a say from, from number 10, uh, the Foreign Office, NATO, as, as Michael said, Ministry of Defence, and, and then finally the Navy would have been allowed back in at the end with, with their views. So uh, why go to the Far East uh, to, to off China? Because it's, it's probably the, the deployment that is the most militarily demanding. It also takes you via a number of route, uh, places where you can usefully operate. Uh, the Mediterranean in particular, there's a NATO option there, and the Eastern Med, there's plenty of activity. The Gulf uh, has, is in the Navy's DNA, um, and with everything going on out of Bahrain with the, with the US Navy there, that's a, there's some useful operations to be had, and you just keep going. And then, and then it's a question of what is your agenda when you get to your, your final point of destination? Is it, is it security? Is it prosperity? These are the conversations that the Foreign Office would have been having, I would imagine, and trying mm -hmm. to shape this deployment but of course the timing is perfect with everything that's going on out there and the and the, the rapid build-up of the of the Chinese Navy uh, the the US insisting on on running freedom of navigation operations which they always have to be honest but they do it in, in uh, um, quite an aggressive fashion so the timing mm -hmm. is perfect but it has been in the planning a long time and Michael what do you think the response will be to the deployment in Beijing uh, the Chinese will be infuriated 
uh, they will argue that it's, uh, it, uh, on the one hand, they'll say that it's ridiculous and irrelevant and it's a sort of a, a, a knee-jerk reaction from an old-fashioned imperialist power. And on the other hand, they'll argue that it's very destabilizing, that somehow it matters. Because what it will do will be a big push in terms of Britain's um, support for FONOPS, the Freedom of Navigation Operations, which we've already contributed to, but these Freedom of Navigation Operations in the South China Sea, where China is claiming um, whole swathes of territory that nobody else uh, recognizes, uh, uh, maritime territory, um, those operations will be much more fraught in the future. And so, you know, sending a, sending a, uh, a carrier battle group anywhere near the South China Sea, we don't yet know where it will deploy, but anywhere near there, um, will actually make Beijing extremely nervy. As, I, as I've said many times, just like Yes Minister, the idea of having a carrier <laughs> battle group in, the, in East Asia is, it's like you say to the brave decision minister, brave decision. <laughs> and he says, what, what do you mean brave decision? Yes, brave decision. Because the risks, the, the, the benefits may be high, but the risks will also be quite high. The Navy will love that. I'm not so sure Downing Street will be, will be comfortable um, as and when they begin to play off. Something to look forward to in 2021. Michael Clark, stay with us. Uh, Tom Sharp, thank you very much for your time today. Now, military personnel are involved in the planning of the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine. It comes after the armed forces' support in helping with mass testing around the country. Retired Major General Tim Cross is a former Director General of the Defence Supply Chain and an expert in logistics. Uh, yes, yeah, so it is a big challenge. I mean, it's not the same as moving heavy metal you know, around the world to our various theatres of operation, but it's the scale in terms of the numbers and, of course, with some of the vaccines, the conditions they need to be moved in. Um, it's very important to stress we, the military, will not be taking this on. I've been asked a couple of times about this as if we were about to move in and take responsibility for it. We will assist under the normal umbrella of the military aid to the civil authority. We will assist the government, local government, NHS, etc., etc., to deliver the vaccine and to help them think through the planning of it, the command and control of it. Um, so it is, it's large scale. We've been supporting the whole of the COVID-19 business, as you know, for, for quite a long time in, in all sorts of ways. Again, not leading it, not commanding it, but assisting building the Nightingale hospitals, setting up some of the test and trace uh, locations and so on. So it's a continuation of that. And it, it will undoubtedly involve quite a lot of the, of the military uh, assisting the various, the various pl other players. Yeah, you mentioned the planners. What kind of added expertise and experience will those military planners involved add? Well, logistics ultimately is about delivering the right stuff to the right place at the right time. So it's about flow as much as anything else. And the availability of these vaccines as, as it comes off the production line, the way that it's moved uh, you know, into the country and then around the country, depending upon the timelines and so on. So our logistic planners who work in our, you know, worked in my brigade and divisional headquarters are all about working through the staff tables, if you like. You know, what, what stuff are we moving? What vehicles do we need to move it with? Where, where, how are we going to move it around the various routes, the lines of communication, and so on and so forth? And there are processes in that, the, the analytical processes that are second nature, frankly, to most military staff officers working in these headquarters. General Tim Cross there will still with us as Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, what are you hearing about possible military involvement in vaccine planning? Uh, only that it's fairly intensive. Um, I mean, the military have got uh, 20,000 personnel on standby. They've, they've not used anything like that in the first round of the assistance, and they probably won't need that in the second round either. But the vaccine rollout is a much bigger logistical challenge than the delivery of PPE. 
because that was delivery to certain hubs and the vaccine um, will be a lot more vaccine hubs. So there's a lot more vaccine to get around. But I think uh, Tim Cross is exactly right. He said we help we help the civilians think through the planning. Mm. On another subject, Michael, NATO foreign ministers have been meeting at a time of change in Washington. What impact will that have on the organisation? Quite a big one. Uh, NATO is scrambling to get on terms with the the Biden administration, particularly Tony Blinken, um, who's going to be the Secretary of State. He's a very um, Atlanticist thinking person. He's exactly the person that they would have wanted for Secretary of State. If they could have picked anybody out of the US in the last two or three years, they'd they'd have picked Tony Blinken. Um, And I think the, the NATO allies need not just to say, well, let's all relax now and get back to where we were. They need to show the United States that they took President Trump's demands seriously. They didn't like his style, but they recognized that he was talking about something that matters to America in general. And I think that the uh, NATO, they were very worried about Turkey. They're, they're worried about the specifics of withdrawal from Afghanistan. They, they, they need to make that coordinated. But beneath all of that, they're really worried that they can get on terms with a Biden administration that will be very distracted by COVID and by domestic issues and a polarized uh, Um, domestic scene, but one where they need to actually create a new transatlantic bargain. I think that's what it's all about. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. Now, we were talking earlier about how the Royal Navy is adapting as technology changes. Well, the recent Littoral Response Group Experimentation, or LRGX in Cyprus, has been a chance for Royal Marines and the Royal Navy to test new technology, from using autonomous systems to carrying out tasks once done by troops on the ground, to different communication networks for a faster, more effective strike group. Bryony Williams reports from Cyprus. resupplies of ammunition, food, other equipment. As part of future commando force developments, these tasks are expected to be done by drones. I'm Major Chris Dawson. I'm OC Bravo Company from 40 Commando Royal Marines. Always resupply has been guys carrying stuff and running it forward uh, from from the, uh, you know, the, the rear echelons that bring it to a certain point. So, yeah, systems like that that can bridge potentially like pretty significant gaps. I mean, we're talking about flying platforms like that from shipping uh, to then come ashore. So that could be an absolute game changer. But um, yeah, obviously it's, it's pretty early in its development. But uh, but yeah, if it, if it comes together, it'll, it'll be really useful. The Malloy drones, depending on what they are carrying, can fly up to 70 kilometres across land and sea and in the coming years could also carry people and assist with casualty evacuation. But unpiloted aerial systems aren't just for the heavy lifting. The foundations for military operations are intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, also known as ISR. The Ghost, another remotely piloted air system being developed for the Royal Marines. It can fly distances of up to 20 kilometres from the pilot and up to 3,000 feet above sea level. It can capture video footage and it also has thermal imaging cameras. But the game changer with this is the software. A pilot can use a computer programme to set instructions for the drone to follow. It can also notify the pilot of any possible threats without a person having to be constantly scanning the feeds from the drone. 
The evolution taking place during littoral response group experimentation in strategic locations like the Eastern Mediterranean show exactly what future missions could be like. I'm Colonel Chris Hall, the commander of the land forces out involved in LRGX. So I would say that LRGX is a proof of concept and we have uh, many civilian contractors out here so we're right at the leading edge of technology and we can only really do it with them and integrating them into our trials. So one of the biggest things that we've trialled here and we have trialled in previous uh, iterations in Norway for example has been uh, developing a communication system that can connect the man on the ground to the ship and right back to the UK. So that provides the flow of information, whether it be intelligence or whether it be uh, decision support um, information. Uh, and that in itself is a major step forwards. And we can then integrate drones or in whatever environment, whether they be in the air, on the surface or subsurface, into that system. Littoral means a region lying along a shore, like just off the coast of Cyprus. Creating a communications network here and making sure it's secure is vital, as the information captured by drones and other sources can be fed to the front line or back to the UK, meaning commando units can work at reach from their higher headquarters. OK, just reading that waypoint file back from the aircraft and then we'll be good to go again. The troops on the ground get the information on their new Android Tactical Assault Kit, or ATAC, a small chess-mounted tablet that can be used in all scenarios. The key advantage is using it to identify friendly forces, or blue forces as they're known. Uh, my name is Corporal Whittit, uh, Bravo Company 40 Commando. So with the, the new radios and the new sort of heads-up displays that we get now, um, it opens up uh, a much wider field of view, blue force tracking, which is notoriously difficult in an urban environment, all of a sudden becomes quite simple. Um, it's just check the screen, right there over there. Awesome. You know, so it's, it's positively identifying friendly forces, which is arguably more important than identifying the enemy. It is new. It opens up a lot of bigger picture that you wouldn't normally get. So as you're, you're, you're bod on the ground, you've got a fairly decent idea because our commanders make sure that the lowest rank has an idea of what's going on. Uh, but with all the new technology, um, the, the attacks that we're using, the blue force tracking, so you, your absolute lowest bod now has a phenomenal idea of what's going on, which is good for us uh, as commanders, meaning if I get taken out the fight for whatever reason, my, my two IC and my men still know what the mission is, can still crack on and still complete it. Building on its core foundations, whether it's new vehicles or drones, future commando force is being enhanced piece by piece to shape the Royal Marines of tomorrow. Bryony Williams with that report. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot. And thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.